The first of my posts to the Facebook group about Part 2 of Bold the Sweef was a focused summary. A member of the Facebook group poetically observed that Maupassant's description of his characters is, quote, surgical, savagely delicate, unquote. I love that description. As the story continues, so does his unsparing dissection. The voice heard by the passengers was that of the enemy, a German officer who demands that they all alight. I imagine that in his effort to make an imposing figure, he would not take kindly to comparisons with a woman in her corset, or an English hotel runner. But so he is described. The response of the passengers to his demand coheres with and adds color to their established characters. The humble nuns, habituated to docility and submission, are the first to obey. The conciliatory nobles follow, Loiseau pushing his wife in front of him and making an appeasing salutation on his way. Last are Cornudet and Boule de Suif, who endeavor to be grave and dignified before the enemy, though Cornudet's show of resistance might be slightly undermined by his trembling hand. Boule de Suif's resistance is no show. When the innkeeper brings word that the Prussian officer wishes to speak to her, her response is immediate and firm. That may be, but I'm not going. We will do well to recall that she has left Rouen because she tried to strangle a Prussian officer with her bare hands. The other travelers, however, insisting that her compliance cannot possibly be fraught with any danger, and rehearsing platitudes in case they themselves are called, urge her to accept the invitation. So she does for their sake. But she returns crimson with indignation, calling him a scoundrel. Maupassant continues to excoriate his subjects for their utter inability to think in or act on high moral principle. The innkeeper's wife complains bitterly about the arrival of the Prussians, first because they cost her money, and only secondarily because she has two sons in the army. Her essential moral complaints about the invaders seems to concern their eating habits and hygiene, but eventually she comes around to a vapid, contextless assertion that it is, quote, a terrible thing to kill people, unquote. Cornudet raises his voice in protest, declaring war, quote, a sacred duty when undertaken in defense of one's country, unquote. However, he never seems inclined to raise much more than his voice, except, of course, a tankard of beer to his lips. And Monsieur Carlamadon and Loiseau consider the costs and benefits of the occupation in entirely mercenary terms, one contemplating the wealth tragically lost to war, while the other sells wine on the sly to the innkeeper. Boule de Suif stands alone in dignity. After night falls and the travelers retire to their rooms, Loiseau sees her boldly reject the amorous advances of Cornudet, on the grounds that it would be shameful, with a Prussian in the very next room, while he spies on them giddily through the keyhole. The next day, the travelers discover the coach unharnessed and covered in snow, and resolve to scour the countryside for the driver. They are astonished to see the Prussian soldiers, whom the beetle says are not at all a bad sort, comfortably integrated into the townspeople's lives, 
peeling potatoes, dandling infants, grinding coffee, and chopping wood. The Count expresses astonishment. Cornudet indignantly retires to his fireside corner and his beer, and Loiseau decides to go out and see if he can sell them some wine. Time passes, and it becomes clear that the Prussian officer intends to hold them until Boule de Suif yields. After he summons her again, and she again refuses him with fearless self-assurance, her companions express indignation, fury, disgust, and tender sympathy. They rally to her side with a feeling of common resistance against the foe. But then they have time to think. The next morning they greet her coolly, because, quote, night, which brings counsel, had somewhat modified the judgment of her companions, unquote. They bear a private grudge against her for not seeking him out under the cover of night and compromising her principles so that they might have a pleasant surprise. They consider the odds of their being able to escape on foot. They examine the officer and find him not at all bad-looking, and even declare him respectful for having chosen the prostitute among them instead of the obviously more desirable married noble women. And Loiseau, in a fit of temper, proposes that they deliver her to the officer, bound hand and foot. But, being the representatives of strong, established society, of good people with religion and principle that they are, they decide on more tactful and civilized measures. They must persuade her. The second of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus on the character of Cornudet that I called Pale Ale and Revolution. Years from now, when you have cause to recall Boule de Suif, I feel certain that one of your most striking memories will be of Cornudet, the Democrat, the terror of all respectable people, sitting by the fireside, stroking his big red beard, squinting lovingly at his beer, and idly talking of revolution. At this point in the story, I might say you would recall him with an amused and tempered fondness, because he's generally a fine and charming fellow though perhaps a bit of a blowhard and a fool. But the story isn't over. There's much to be fond of. Cornudet is a great patriot and a fervent Democrat. He listens to the story of Boule de Suif's defiance with an approving smile. He congratulates Madame Follenvie on her regicidal sentiments. He raises his voice in defense of war. And when commanded by the Prussian officer to alight from the carriage, he follows orders, but last. He lacks the pretenses of his noble companions. Maybe not any pretenses, but he at least lacks their pretenses. He unhesitatingly accepts food from his degraded companion, and he gallantly puts his lips to the rim of the cup still moist from those of his neighbor. He takes action to defend his principles. The German officers pulled from the bottom of the river did not likely die at his hands, but he does dig trenches on the outskirts of town. He refuses to join his companions in a conference with their captor, and when Boule de Suif announces that the officer has demanded to sleep with her, he does take bold and violent action, banging his jug of beer on the table and breaking it. And this is a man who really knows how to enjoy a good beer.
But on the other hand, he is the sort of man gullible and simple-minded enough to show up ready to assume a role in government he had been convinced was his by a practical joke. Also, he is a bit of a lech, having to be rebuffed by Boldesweef first in the close company of the carriage, and then again in the indecent circumstances of their captivity. And his political principles seem to be little more than a costume he wears, like his big red beard, in an effort to play the role of the righteous revolutionary. His speeches sound like stump oratory, or, quote, the proclamations daily pasted on the walls of the town, unquote. And he thinks that beard and speeches together give him a monopoly on patriotism. But we will never forget him, thanks to descriptions like this, quote, he had his own fashion of uncorking the bottle and making the beer foam, gazing at it as he inclined his glass, and then raised it to a position between the lamp and his eye, that he might judge of its color. When he drank, his great beard, which matched the color of his favorite beverage, seemed to tremble with affection. His eyes positively squinted in the endeavor not to lose sight of the beloved glass and he looked for all the world as if he were fulfilling the only function for which he was born. He seemed to have established in his mind an affinity between the two great passions of his life, pale ale and revolution, and assuredly he could not taste the one without dreaming of the other." Unquote. Though, let's face it, if there were a conflict between his two highest values, pale ale, and revolution, we need have little doubt which would emerge victorious. For now, let's raise a toast to Cornudet, and then see what Part 3 has in store. The third of my post to the Facebook group was called Life in All Its Details. In the preface to his novel Pierre et Jean, Maupassant records the advice given to him by his mentor, Flaubert, who said, quote, the thing is to look at what one wishes to express long enough and carefully enough to discover in it an aspect which no one has ever seen or said. In everything there is something undiscovered, because we are only accustomed to use our eyes with the recollection of what people have thought before us about the thing at which we are looking. There is an unknown quantity in the smallest thing find it." Unquote. British poet and literary critic Arthur Simons says in his introduction to a collection of Maupassant's works, quote, This unknown quantity in familiar things Maupassant knew how to find. Unquote. I'd like to dwell on those words a moment. In my discussion of Victor Hugo's 93, I describe the way in which great authors have the power to help us discover a sort of X-ray vision, a vision that allows us to see not through things, but to the heart of things. Maupassant, too, has that power, and we see it in the way he efficiently cuts through to a character's core, deftly laying his soul bare. But as a naturalist writer, Maupassant is less concerned to show us the moral import of his observations. Instead, his is more a power to, with fresh eyes, and a clear focus, and a keen interest, and a masterful facility with words, just observe. 
Simons says, quote, Maupassant saw life with his senses. He saw life in all its details, and his soul was entangled in the details. Unquote. I've read several other Maupassant short stories, and frankly, because what I want first and foremost from literature is plot and moral meaning, I'm usually left unsatisfied. But I will still read them for his unparalleled power of description. Now I think Boule de Suif is a more neatly tied up package than most of Maupassant's short stories. But even if it weren't, I derive enjoyment from his power to see, and to describe what he sees. His description, for example, of an officer's mustache. Quote, his exaggerated mustache, long and straight and tapering to a point at either end in a single blonde hair that could hardly be seen seemed to weigh down the corners of his mouth and give a droop to his lips." Unquote. Or an innkeeper's asthma. Quote, so absorbed was his attention that he even forgot to expectorate. The consequence was that his chest gave forth rumbling sounds like those of an organ. His wheezing lungs struck every note of the asthmatic scale, from deep hollow tones to a shrill hoarse piping resembling that of a young cock trying to crow." Unquote. Or a Democrat's pipe and beer. Quote, it was a fine meerschaum, admirably colored to a black the shade of its owner's teeth, but sweet-smelling, gracefully curved, at home in its master's hand and completing his physiognomy. And Cornudet sat motionless, his eyes fixed now on the dancing flames, now on the froth which crowned his beer. And after each draft he passed his long, thin fingers with an air of satisfaction through his long, greasy hair as he sucked the foam from his mustache." Unquote. Or, very memorably, a courtesan's fingers. Quote, Puffy fingers constricted at the joints, looking like rows of short sausages. Unquote. It is always easy for our sight to become dimmed by complacency and convention. And I love how literature like Maupassant's encourages us to look at things more closely, and to entangle our souls in the details. <laughs>